Coming up next, Dr. Mark Gerstein from Yale University explains the essence of life through network theory. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Futures in Biotech is provided by CashFly at CashFly.com. This is Futures in Biotech, episode 83. Bioinformatics, essential gene names skewed in a network of blame. I believe that biotech is the next frontier. Probably the greatest intellectual revolution that's ever taken place uh, in man's history. DNA is the code for life. We're actually beginning to understand how life works, which I think is something that's mind-blowing in and of itself. There was not going to be a genetic component to aging. How long was there the DNA extension? About 30, 40% for humans. That would equate to something like 20 to 30 years. How close are we to actually having a therapy? Ballpark, 10 years. So potentially one of the things that will end rocking the world the same way that uh, people said, oh, the sun's the center of the universe, oh, this and that and everything. And now here's somebody who can come out and say, hey, look, here's how we compare it to our closest evolutionary relative. Welcome to Futures in Biotech. I'm Mark Peltier. Today, we have Dr. Mark Gerstein, who's the Albert L. Williams Professor of Biomedical Informatics, Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, and Computer Science at Yale University. He's one of the top bioinformaticians. No, he is the top bioinformatician in the world, in my opinion, my humble opinion. I'm putting him on a pedestal. <laughs> He's been a guest, a host, co-host, and a panelist and subject matter expert on Futures in Biotech, and I'd like to welcome him back. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. And this time we have video. <laughs> hey, so um, let's, you know, I, I was a guest last night on um, Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, and I was for the first time on the other side. And I, one of the things I realized is it's, 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 it's always nerve-wracking at the start. So before we get into the hardcore science, uh, which it will be, um, how about, we, I, can we ask you a little bit about how you became a, a professor in three different departments? And... Um, which seems very, very cross uh, field or, um, you know, it, it's, it's a very, very wide spread of uh, areas of expertise. How did you, well, one, how did you get into science? And that how did that lead you to being a professor at Yale in three different departments? That's, that's something that's uh, it's quite inspiring. Uh, well, I, um, I've always been interested in science. And, you know, I, I think I started out being interested in science in, um, probably kindergarten or even beyond, I, you know, just like playing with um, molecules, uh, at Lego, you know, building things and stuff like that. Um, you know, I loved the DNA molecule when I was little, the helices and all that stuff. I thought that was really fun. And then when computers came out, and, and they weren't out when I was very, very little, I have to say, but when they came out, I really liked uh, playing with computers. I, you know, um, I got one of the uh, early Apple computers, and I just enjoyed playing with it all the time. And what was you know, your first I, machine? Oh, actually, I think I got something even before an Apple. I think, geez, I think I, I think I got one of those Commodore things. And Commodore twenty. I think it was a Commodore sixty-four. Cool. Um, <laughs> and I got that, and then I got an Apple, and I, I really like an Apple, and it's amazing. I'm. I'm using a Macintosh now. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> All those years, <laughs> we had a, we had a brief period of using the PC, and um, 
you know, I just, I liked uh, computers and I liked computing and um, I liked molecules uh, and I, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of natural that I would end up kind of uh, doing computations on uh, molecules uh, and so that's what I kind of ended up doing. I, I mean, I, when I was in college, I was a physics major and they didn't really have um, computational biology or anything like that. And, you know, I kind of got interested in biophysics and computational biophysics and when I went to grad school, you know, I tried to put those things together. They really didn't still have a proper kind of computational uh, biology thing. But, you know, as times went on, uh, as, after I've started at Yale and, and, and now, you know, more and more they have proper programs in this field where they really bring together the computation and the biological sciences. And that's, that's what really my appointment at Yale is supposed to do. I mean, I, I'm in uh, molecular biophysics and biochemistry and also in uh, computer science and my my actual my title is a professor of um, uh, bioinformatics or biomedical informatics and, and and my real focus there is uh, computational biology. Wow! So you you had a, uh, a, a, a did, when you started as a as a kid did you ever make a, a DNA helix with Lego? <laughs> not with Lego. That's a good. That's a very good question. Because that's actually very hard to do if you think about it. It's very hard to do. I've, I, if I've tried doing that. You, you can make helices, but if you think about it, it's actually very hard with Lego. But we had, no, we had a little science project. I remember when I was in, um, I think it was like in third grade or second grade, you know, just making things with like metal and everything. And I was really into making the uh, double helix. And uh, I still have that model. It's, 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 <laughs> it's an cool. representation, but it... Uh, it really consumed a lot of my time when I was little. <laughs> you know, you walk into the old biophysics departments, right? You see the protein models where somebody actually did use, like, you know, cork and toothpicks to, to you know, once the x-ray structure was determined, uh, that's how people would have to visualize a protein structure. You know, there's no way to do it on a computer. If you're in 1978, you're really not going to... Uh, Look at Star Wars, right? The way they 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 had the the high res graphics of a interplanetary, a capable species of humans, right? They had computers that just had little vectors. So if you wanted to build a a model, you you did all your calculations on hand and by paper and by maybe little poking the the little piece of paper and running it through one of those uh, Steve Gibson esque computers, and then. <laughs> <laughs> then it would give you the numbers, and you'd have to sit there and build it with quarks and toothpicks. I, you know, didn't uh, James Watson just do it with uh, cutouts? Right? Oh yeah, I mean the original, all the original mo uh, molecules people built obviously were, you know, physical models. And you know, there was this transition that happened. I, I think probably sort of after I really got into it, where everything moved into computer graphics and looking at it on the computer. But what's interesting now is we have the advent. Of um, of course the computation, but we also have 3D printers. So now you even have the extreme of looking at the molecule on the the computer and actually being able to print it out in as a dimensional representation. So I I think people will go back to uh, actually playing with physical molecule molecular models soon. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking, you know, if HP, you think they charge a lot for their 2D ink. <laughs> yes, no, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. God, they'll, they'll give you the printer for free, of course, <laughs> 3D printer, but it's going to cost you like $500 for the ink. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like a plastic polymer, right, that just they melt on layers. and. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I've used some equipment in the lab that was printed on 2D, on 3D printers, uh, some valve systems for uh, some impedance-based 
cell microfluidics devices. So <laughs> let's 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 talk a little bit about networks. Uh, you do a lot of um, work trying to. I guess one of the things that characterizes your work is that you try to get a comprehensive look at extremely complex um, biology. And, um, you know, I have a very reductionist approach to my science, which is one protein, one drug. And that's what I can handle. And so I'd really appreciate if you could explain um, a little bit about your work and how you, how, how you can sort of piece it together and, uh, and explain it. Sure. I mean, well, n networks, I mean, I think they're very appealing to a lot of scientists because they do give you that kind of um, global or systems view um, of the uh, whole cell or um, you know, maybe a whole organism even. Um, and, and at the same time, one of the really nice things about networks, I'll explain in a bit, is that they, um, uh, they, they, they work in many different disciplines. So you can sort of see the same idea in biological sciences and kind of map it on to more commonplace context. And, that, and I think personally that's extremely important because um, people have very low intuition for um, molecules, particularly biological molecules, and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit in my, my talk, but it, they, have, they really can't um, think that easily about them. They can think very easily about social situations or more commonplace objects. And, and I think if you can make a mapping between them, it really helps you uh, understand things. And that's one of the, I think, the big appeals of networks. I have to admit, in my third year undergraduate, I read a genetic engineering text, and then it kind of hit my brain, and yes, I could, I could visualize DNA, and I could really get gene structure, and it, all of a sudden it made sense. <laughs> but still, one gene at a time, I'm, I'm not a systems, uh, uh, systems analyst, I, I, I can't do it. It's just, so, you, uh, do you, so do you have the slides, Burke? Do you have the, the slides? How, how do you how, go for? Well, that's I'll fine. That's that's good for a first one there. Yeah, you you. That's that's the second slide actually. That's that's good. Okay, we're looking at a slide that has a chromosome stretched out, uh, some annotation to that chromosome, um, and it's chromosome seven. Um, just for the uh, listening audience, and uh, go, go and wow, there's some like chart. What's what's that? I'll, I'll let you explain it. Well, yeah. So the, this this slide is just supposed to represent kind of the. One of the problems people grapple with um, that they use networks for is people want to um, understand the genome. That's, that, that's really the fundamental uh, challenge in a lot of uh, biological science now. You know, what does the genome mean? Um, you know, one of the ways of thinking about the genome is this sort of list of molecules. And, and this is a picture of that list where you just have a linear chromosome and you have kind of little uh, arrows to where all the genes are. And, you know, the question is how do you think about the function of all those molecules and so forth and you know and that's kind of the overarching problem that um, uh, you know I think people address with networks and actually if you go to the um, the uh, next uh, next slide uh, that that's the one with the little three on it uh, that one shows um, a little bit about um, kind of the traditional way uh, people in biological sciences think about um, um, the function of a gene and you know it, I have to go into the details of it, but the point is what... Yeah, that's me. I get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing is, there's, there, there is a tradition in biological sciences of, you know, um, I have a molecule. How do I describe its function? And, you know, often what people want to do is that they want to use words. So they want to give the molecule a name, and they want to um, 
sort of describe its function by a sentence. So this is a, a well-known molecule here, and it, it, there's a little sentence that um, describes this uh, molecule it's called elongation factor 2 and how it's evolved in translocation. This is a kind of traditional way people describe function. But then the question you have to ask, of course, is, um, you know, if you go to the next slide, it sort of shows that it, you know, you have to think a little bit about how, how this single molecule view is going to scale to, to tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of different molecules that are involved in a cell. And, you know, you, you might say, well, um, I'll just have, you know, 10,000 sentences or 10,000 phrases to describe all the things. But, you know, there's a lot of problems with doing that systematically. I mean, first of all, it, it's actually hard um, to correctly use language to really describe all the functions of a molecule. A molecule molecules have um, many different functions. Sometimes one function is carried out by one, uh, by a number of molecules. Uh, other times, you, you mean different things by functions. There's the role in the cell, there's the, the type of biochemistry the molecule uh, carries out and so forth. And, you know, that, that's a lot of tricky things. And one of the um, uh, other issues, too, is when you really drill into biological science in detail, you, you know, you see that they've constructed this very complex language and, and names and stuff like that. And some of this stuff, I think, is just funny and fun. And, and I, I have a little bit of a aside here, which I thought you, you might find interesting about this type of language. And so on slide um, five, there's a, um, a picture of, um, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a picture of a, a very uh, famous um, Vincent Van Gogh picture called Starry Night. And um, it turns out, you know, I, a while ago, I just stumbled on this uh, gene name called Starry Night, and I was reading about it. So you might say, well, how does something get a name like Starry Night, and how does the word Starry night actually describe the function of something or what it does. Um, and, um, you know, it's kind of very convoluted, but it's kind of interesting. It turns out that the, um, the person who named this gene, they noted that it was mutated. It changed the bristles on the, the eye of the fly to have that pattern that's shown in the bottom um, right. And the person was very... Um, <clears throat> erudite, the, the person who named this gene, and they said, geez, you know, this looks a lot like this very famous painting by uh, Vincent van Gogh, which is Starry Night. And so they, they, that, that's how they named it. And when you understand this whole little story, it's, oh, that's really cool. You actually, um, that name Starry Night means something. But then you have it's to say to yourself, amazing. yeah, I'm, it I'm, does this By the way, we have a lag, and, and I'm looking at the, the picture here of the Starry Night painting, and then the bristles on the eye of the Drosophila, and... It's scary how life imitates art here. I'm sorry, it's scary. <laughs> scary what? It's scary how life imitates art. Oh, yes. Well, or art imitates life. <laughs> but, um, it, yeah, no, no, it, it, is, it is interesting. And I, I, I think that it's actually a great name. The thing that's interesting, it's a great name for something um, when you understand the connections. But if you don't, it actually is completely perplexing. And you have to say to yourself, um, well, you know, how, how does this type of idea scale to, to hundreds of thousands or, uh, you know, or so molecules? And, and uh, it doesn't, I, I, I don't think, very well. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of the problem. And, and actually, on the, the next slide, this is just kind of fun. I, 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 I like to, you know, I, this is kind of a sort of talk I tend to give a lot. And I actually kind of got really into this naming, um, these bizarre names in biology. And I actually created an, an ontology. <laughs> of classification of, of naming pathologies. And, you know, there's just some really fun names. You can, you can actually look at the different types of names that people create. And so, for instance, there's, 
like one, there's two genes, one's named kryptonite and the other's named Superman. And, you know, it's actually interesting. What's happening there is they're transferring a naming system from someplace else. You know, it's obviously the kryptonite and Superman from the comics to the molecules. And if you understand the comic story, you'll understand sort of what the molecules do. And there's, there's other times where people make um, really interesting allusions in um, uh, molecule names, like for instance, there's a molecule called Yuri, and you might say, well, what does that mean? Um, well, Yuri, it's named for um, Yuri uh, Gregarian, uh, one of the first uh, cosmonauts. And of course, this molecule has to kind of do with um, sort of uh, balance and, uh, you know, sort of falling down and so forth. And, you know, there's a lot of these interesting things, and I, I, I actually find... Is there find a Tribbles that, protein? Yeah, there's Tribbles, and it has to do with uh, reproduction. You can probably, probably guess. <laughs> well, no, Reproductive like, gene named Tribbles. That's, that's great. Really, really, or Blue really X, really right? Um, and, but, you know, it, it's, again, it's one of these things where if you drill into each of them, it's, it, you, it's a lot of fun. That's why I thought I'd kind of show this. But, again, it's not a type of thing that's going to, you know, work for 10,000 things in the genome. Drop dead? I like that one. <laughs> Drop dead is interesting. That, that's humorous, but it actually, it describes what it does. It, it, it you know, if you have this, um, this particular gene is associated with a mutation such that the organism drops dead really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that's nuts so I, I, I guess well yeah the way it worked right um, I, I remember back in the day um, it would, we'd do a, uh, some kind of a biological study looking for proteins and uh, searching out uh, functional interactions of proteins with other proteins and you'd find a new protein you'd run the DNA sequence you'd come back on Monday after exposing your film for the weekend and it was very 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 exciting and you wondered did I get the whole open reading frame and you're using radioactivity and the lab was a mess and it was uh, a little dangerous and uh, so you'd, you'd look at your A's your T's your C's and your G's and you'd, you'd, you'd do it by hand and then you know it was so much work giving it a name like Tribbles is, is you know makes it really fun makes the way <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, actually, there's one name there called um, Yippie, and uh, supposedly the the gene was named because the person just felt like Yippie when they discovered this uh, discovered this particular gene. <laughs> there's the sumo, right? You know, there's uh, yeah, the sumo of... too. Yeah, I guess it has. It's, it, it was these. You know, it's kind of like in the movie. Um, uh, with uh, Cusack, there where he's naming his albums or he's positioning his albums by chronological order, by biography. These were all these genes were named um, over time by individuals who had some tie to uh, the discovery, and they were done very very slowly. But I, I guess in today's day, when you're doing a, a genome high fidelity, yes, thanks, Beatmaster. Um, when you're doing an entire genome in about three hours, I suppose. Uh, you can't do much more with it, right? You can't. It's hard to organize and visualize. Well, well that's that's the issue. I mean, it, it, this this type of stuff. It's really interesting, and in a certain sense, you might say very baroque in a way. But it it, it just doesn't work well with the the genome in a few, in in a few hours or the 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 very large scale biology. And you can kind of see it's kind of almost like biology is pushing up to the boundaries of language, really, to really be able to describe all these things well and so forth and in, in your know, English language is not always the right um, sort of tool for this type of thing. So, I'm, so in I'm any case, uh, what, what you got there is that's an ontology. Actually on the, on the next slide on, on the, the, the seven one there, I, I thought this would be kind of fun. This is a, 
you can actually plot for each um, each gene name how often you see that in the biological science literature versus how often you see it on the web. You know, this is this was done a while ago, so we used Yahoo as opposed to Google, and it, it's really neat because you know there's some where there's, they're kind of proportional. You know, you see the name more in the biological science literature, you see it more on the web, but there's some where you don't see it very much in the biological science literature, but it's, tr it's really common on the web. And you can see what's going on there. These are genes like um, cat or dog, or, or where you have the, the layering on of a kind of common usage onto the gene name. And it's, it's kind of neat. You can see that there's a certain fractioning of these names that, are, that just have a life onto them, their own, you know, in the sort of popular world, you know, beyond the biological, uh, biological world. What's the, there's one gene that, that seems to be the highest hit um, on Yahoo and highest hit on PubMed. Is, do you know what, the, what gene one and two are? Here? Uh, I don't, I should know. I think they have little numbers because in the paper, I, um, we probably called them out, but I don't, don't remember off the top of my head. But that, that is actually kind of interesting what those are. Well, there are some, well, knowing what the nature of the internet is, <laughs> I wonder if these oh, are yes. reproductive. <laughs> yes, no, that's... that's or, sorry uh, to bring you down to that level, but uh, yeah, these probably have some name that are relevant to reproduction. <laughs> yes, no, that's actually, that, that no, it, it's, a lot of stuff is fun. I mean, you're probably right that, that a lot of the, the, the names that are really popular are really skewed. You know, there's, they fall in certain categories for sure. I won't say anymore. Okay, so I guess Google would, you know, this the internet is the internet. Um, uh, um, so how, how, so what? So by comparing the PubMed hits to Yahoo hits, you're inferring uh, that language has a. a um, well, you're seeing, you're, you're seeing the distortion. That you're seeing the um, the way a lot of gene names are are kind of overlaid with popular terms. And like I said, you can kind of just sort of see that for a lot of gene names, they are um, they're they're kind of layered on with a lot of things. And and, and again, I can I think you can kind of see the baroque um, kind of nomenclature things that we're see, seeing a lot in biology. And I think this is a good thing. I mean, it's it's fun. It's 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 frankly a lot of fun. But you know, again, it's not the thing that scales. And actually, if you go on to the next slide, I'll I'll just kind of walk you through this. And so people, you know, people have been thinking about what to do. You know, how do you be more uh, systematic? And they have, you know, there's a whole world of systematists who, you know, they have these uh, what they call ontologies, a control of vocabularies. You can kind of get a sense from looking at these little figures. You know, they kind of have categories and things fit into bigger categories. And there's different ways of doing this. And that's one. One approach. There's a very popular biological system called the Go system for gene ontology system, that um, you know kind of classes genes this way. It's a very useful system. Um, but then in the next slide, on slide nine, I kind of give you the the network um, perspective, and the the network perspective basically is you um, <clears throat> you don't so much think about what something is but you think about what it's connected to or its context in the network. So it's, it's like, it's not who you are, but it's who your friends are. You know, it's like you're defined by your connections. And, you know, if you think about it for a second, I, I, 
in a certain sense, even in kind of social context, that sort of makes sense a little bit. You know, it, 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 it's a way to think about people. And actually, I think for molecules, a lot of times, their context is the most important thing about them and they, the other molecules they're around. And so the picture just shows, um, you know, different representations of networks. There's high throughput representations. There's more traditional representations. But the key idea is that central molecule, notch, which is, again, one of these, you know, um, names that is obviously uh, an overloaded English term, it's actually not being defined by that word notch, but it's simply being defined by its position in this overall network. Um, and, you know, then I got a, a few more um, slides that just give people a little bit of a sense of, um, you know, the why networks are kind of so popular now. And, and, and the next one, which is slide 10, just gives you a bit of a sense that, um, you know, what biologists or I, I'd say scientists really want is, you know, they want, of course, go from that one D parts list of the genome that we started out with, and they really want, I mean, detailed biophysical understanding of how everything works, predictive understanding, you know, how these, each of these things work as machines, almost to a level that you don't really even need to talk about them. You can predict how they work almost, you know, at, like I said, as, as machines. But the, the truth is that's a, a long way away for, you know, the 100,000 so molecules in the genome. And so the, the network or the kind of wiring diagram representation is this kind of very convenient middle place that gives you some sense of what's, you know, who's talking to who, who's connected to who and so forth, and gives you a little bit more annotation or information than just the parts list from the genome. But at the same time, it, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't require as much knowledge as, the, say, the detailed, you know, say, 3D understanding of all the molecules. And I, I think that's one reason why their networks are really popular. Another... Um, By the way, before you, you go on, I want to just uh, explain this to the, um, the uh, listening audience here. The, the slide that you're showing here is a, the, it's got uh, three basic panels. The first panel on the left is... Um, a circle map with little uh, hash lines going through it, and it it represents the genome of probably a bacteria, right? One chromosome. That's and correct. Actually, that's one of the first genome sequences. I think. I think it's Haemophilus influenza, actually. And if you look at that, you get the absolutely just the parts list because it doesn't give you any more information. But you just got their position within the chromosome. Then you go to the one that looks like a. If those in Quebec, uh, a pom-pom that you might find on a, on a hat. Well, on a chick, people use you know? from hairball. Hairball is the kind of Hairball, <laughs> which with, with yeah, uh, it, it looks exactly like a hairball. Or um, a sparkler with lines going out <laughs> all over the place. And so each individual node of that uh, represents the product of a gene or a gene that inter has interplay with multiple uh, connections. So you see this like... It's kind of a mix between a hairball and uh, uh, a sparkler. Then the third one is the actual three-dimensional structure of the gene product, which is the protein. So um, networks occupy a midway point in the terms of level of understanding. Right. So when we were cloning genes, uh, you know, back in the heyday of the 90s where you would uh, look for a mutation in, in yeast that caused a biological function to, to be changed, you isolate the, the DNA and you compare it by its sequence. You knew the sequence, you could read it, so you're on 1D. But then uh, by sequence homology, you could predict its, uh, its uh, um, 
structure a little bit and that could predict a little bit of what it, what it was doing or how it was doing. But then if you did something like a two hybrid screen where you're looking for its, the proteins that interact with it, you could fit it within uh, a functional pathway uh, and then nail it down. Um, and that's your, your second figure here which shows how just having the network information can, can give you a tremendous amount of information information as to how that gene is working. And by the way, that could be you're looking for um, the proteins that modulate the function of a chloride channel, which might result in a disease like cystic fibrosis, right? So um, while this seems, uh, you know, theoretical, when you're actually trying to tackle a major problem, uh, you need to know. And the quicker you know what that information is, the, the quicker you are towards a cure. Sure. I mean, it's it's often the case that the the you know diseases and um, sort of anomalies really result from many you know p many genes working together in these kind of systems. And, and like I said, often the way people represent the many genes working together is in the framework of a network or pathway or some multi-molecule representation. Um, and and I think that's one of the reasons there's these things are so so popular in in biology now. Um, now another thing that's interesting is if if you if you go to the next next slide 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 eleven there, it, it um, one I think one of the really powerful things about networks is the point I was making earlier is that people in biological science are very interested in them and think they're they're great but there's there's a lot of other disciplines that are using networks now you know so there's obviously neural networks there's the internet you know computer networks you know people look at social networks and so forth. And in the center, I have this book by this very famous uh, network theorist named uh, Barabasi, who's, who's talked a lot about networks, properties in general. And one of the neat things is this community that's being developed now that talks about network um, theory or, or net networks kind of as an abstract concept. And the language they use crosses all these disciplines. And so it, it's a way, actually, for people to communicate biological ideas in actually much easier to understand language than the language of Starry Night or the complicated gene names. And so I think one of the most powerful things that networks provide to biology now is a way of communicating the complexity that people in other disciplines can understand. And also, like I said, providing analogies, as I'll just describe in a bit, where you can think about a biological science system as a social network or as, you know, more in the way you think about a computer. And this a lot of times helps you in thinking about things. And so I, I think this is one of the nicest things um, about networks. And, and actually the next slide is I think a good, um, <clears throat> a good illustration of what I mean by this. So if you go to slide 12, um, th this one, this is just a picture I took out of the New York Times, or two pictures I took out of the New York Times. <laughs> Rod, so, Rod so I, I think Blagovich? you can kind of get a lot of, you, this puts Blagovich. together a lot of, so I've been talking about how does the network describe function and how do we use analogies to really understand molecular functions. And so the top uh, right-hand thing, <clears throat> that shows a picture that they call the, um, the blame game. And um, <laughs> what it shows is a bunch of arrows with heads of politicians. And the arrows kind of show blame being ascribed. And, and actually, if you look at this, you, you probably recognize all the people on the, the, the cartoon. But you can almost kind of see, like, you know, what's kind of going on. Who's, where, who's in charge, frankly, and where, where all the kind of blame is is going and it, I think it gives you a sense of the function of these people even if you didn't know who they were and like 
There's the, let um, me explain. Let me just describe it a little bit. Sure, sure. Here. You've got Rush Limbaugh blaming Mayor <laughs> Wayne, Nagin, Nagin, and he is blaming Michael Brown from FEMA, and George Bush is blaming Michael Brown from FEMA, and he's blaming the churches, and Bill Clinton is blaming George Bush, and uh, Bill Maher is blaming George Bush, and Governor Kathleen Blanco is being blamed by Rush Limbaugh and by the news media. <laughs> this is fantastic. Okay. Well, you know, it, it is, well, the, thing, the thing that's neat about, like I said, is it, it, you, you look at this kind of network of blame and you, you kind of get the sense of, you know, the phrase, where the buck, the buck stops here. Well, it, it does, in a sense. It, it stops, you can see, up, at, up there at George, George W. or something like that. And, you know, he's, you, know, you can see he's got a, a self-blame little loop. Yeah, he blames himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, no, no, but I, but I think it, it, it gives you a sense of his position. And, He's a leader, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, again, people have an immediate intuition for that, what's kind of going on, because the social situation that they're accustomed to. Now, if you see the same picture for molecules, they won't have the intuition, but if you can map it, you know, map the molecular picture to the social picture, I think it, it helps people a bit um, understand things. And, and likewise, the one on the bottom left, I, this one's called guilt by association. It's another... Um, <clears throat> just clipping from the New York Times, and you can see. Um, I think it's kind of obvious what's going on here. You've got this. Um, I can't pronounce this guy's name, but Rod B, who's this um, governor who got himself. Goyevich. Yes, yes. Well, and, and well, and you can see what what does guilt by association mean? You can see the the path of connections in in a sense. And um, again, people use that term guilt by association when they're talking about molecular function and here you get a much more intuitive idea of it. Right. He, he's, he, there's a, a, Anton uh, Tony Rezko who's connected to William Cellini. Uh, well, I don't want to mention names. <laughs> well, these Levine, people are very, very public John, characters. I mean, John Harris, chief of staff. And so if, 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 is red guilty and blue not guilty? I, I think that's my interpretation of this figure, yes. Right. So uh, if you know someone, you're guilty. Well, that, that, does, that does reflect you know, biological function. If I'm looking at the, the, one, the first one that you described here, the, uh, the blame game for uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh only has arrows blaming away from him. And I, I can imagine a lot of proteins that have that particular activity. It might be uh, something, uh, a protein that modifies you know, for example, adds methyl groups to DNA. It doesn't receive methyl groups. It just gives methyl groups. Um, and, and some proteins like kinases that are way up high on the singling, singling pathways, which act sort of like dip switches to major biological function, they might be phosphorylating themselves. And that's kind of the leader uh, position and high up in the, on the rank of you know, proteins to watch, particularly for disease, because if they're mutated, they disrupt a lot of systems. I suppose people die in those situations. But uh, sure, I mean, no, I mean, what people, pe what people are very interested in 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 the frame of biological networks is they want to kind of find these um, regulatory cascades or kind of chains of causation, you know, that are say leading to that are say potentially leading to cancer or even just leading to normal biological function, and they of course want to you know, modify these, these cascades, or at least uh, kind of understand how um, biological regulation takes place. And I, 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 and I think to some degree, I mean, it's obviously not the, the same as in, in a social situation, exactly the same, but I do think some of these analogies are, are quite useful. 
I'd like to take just a quick second. Uh, we, we don't have a sponsor, but I'd like to do a little bit of station ID. You're listening to Futures in Biotech on Twit TV. Um, and today we have uh, Dr. Mark Gerstein from Yale University explaining the uh, sort of the how to develop a major nomenclature for a complex system. Uh, well, that is life, I suppose. <laughs> I guess that's really what you're doing, right? You're, 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 you're building up to establishing a framework. Well, I don't, I don't want to, I'll, I'll let you continue. Uh, uh, to explain, you know, the inner workings of the molecules and the chemistry of life, which hasn't been done yet per se. But I'll, I'll let you continue. So that no, that is definitely the idea. I mean, I mean, I, I wouldn't say you know, obviously, my just myself doing, but I, but I do think that the idea that of all the people in this kind of systems biology and kind of network community is they they do see this as a kind of framework to um, yeah to understand the cell and to understand how the genome is functioning. I mean, that's, that's really the, the thrust behind it, um, I mean, the, the whole uh, discipline. And I, gotta, I have a few more uh, beginning slides. I'll, I'll just quickly say, I don't know if we have to belabor them. The, other, the big thing also that's important in biological science is if you probably just jump right to um, slide uh, 14, uh, just uh, two down, it, is that, you know, a lot of the types of, in, the types of connections that... Um, people um, studying biology can be represented as different types of networks. And sure, there's the proteins are um, interacting and touching. That makes one network. There's a metabolic pathway of the um, sort of mo small molecule being passed down between different enzymes. That makes another network. There's the regulatory network of the transcription factor regulating its target. And again, that makes a different network. And this picture just kind of shows... That's kind of like a Google Circles thing. Oh yes, yes. yes. <laughs> well, it, it, yes. It's a, Google Circles is maybe a little less regulatory, but it's not. <laughs> that's it, true. It, it looks like that. Well, I, I think that, like I said, I think that's the key point. That these pictures do have immediate intuition for people, and and that that is different from a lot of the other situations you have in uh, biology where people don't have that quick intuition. And. So what, what I, if you go to the next slide, I, I don't know if we're going to really have time to go through all these particular things, but I did, did have a little bit of a layout of different things that you can kind of talk about related to networks. And so there's, there's a certain background of terms that people have that people think about related to um, networks. And then I thought that what might be good to do is to talk about some of these types of network comparisons, which I think they're very easy to... Um, like I said, easy to grasp. And two that we've been very keen on are comparing the uh, regulatory network to kind of a government hierarchy or social hierarchy, and then comparing the um, kind of regulatory network to the way a computer operating system works. And then the final thing is, um, I don't, which I don't think we'll have probably time for, is to look at how networks change in different environments. And that's kind of an interesting um, thing people uh, talk a lot about, too. Um, I don't know. I mean, how do you want me to do this? Do you want me to just kind of quickly jump through some things or spend a lot of time on one thing, or how do you, how do you want it to go? Well, I don't... It's, it's, <laughs> I'm just trying right, to follow. Why don't, I just plunge, why don't I just plunge in? I'll plunge in. I'll give a little okay. bit of background, and then I'll, I'll jump into the... The, the the comparisons, which I think are actually the most most interesting stuff, and I'll yeah. you know focus on the sort of how should we say um, 
you know, immediately obvious uh, t types of things. So one of the things, okay, so if you go, if you slip, slip there to slide uh, 14, or sorry, slide 17, the, um, one of the immediate things that people uh, look at in networks, a very simple idea, just that, it, it, that people talk about the degree, you know, sort of like how many friends do you have? You know, if you're the blue node, do you have four friends, five friends, whatever? And then they talk about path length, you know, how many, um, if you, you, you're one blue node and there's another blue node, how many links connect you? You know, very simple, simple ideas. But those simple ideas, there's some neat things that people have found. And so if you go to the next um, slide, slide 18, one of the things that um, people have uh, found looking at networks is this concept of um, hubs. And so when they, uh, they plot how many kind of friends or um, neighbors a given node has, they'll often find in many networks that um, there's a, there's a, most, most, nodes or, you know, sort of center points or molecules, whatever, have only a few things they're touching, and then there's a few things that have a lot of things. And they sometimes use the term a power law distribution or heavy tail distribution to describe this type of um, relationship, that there's a few things that have a lot of connections. And, and, if you, and if you think to yourself, what are those few things that have a lot of connections? They're, they're hubs. And, you know, this is a commonsensical word that people use. And, and you know, you can think to yourself how these hubs they, they act to kind of structure the network. And so the picture to the right-hand side is, shows a little network and it shows the hubs with a little bit of color on them. I mean, it's sort of obvious. You can see those hubs are very important and people have an immediate um, grasp of this. So that's one sort of term that people often use. And now if you go to the next, next slide, slide 19, one of the things people did um, initially in, in kind of networks, uh, network biology is they said, well, geez, um, hubs appear to be very important in just the abstract connectivity of the of a graph. Maybe um, they're actually we can actually show they're more more important in terms of an organism. So what they did is, and this is the neat thing about biology that really separates it from many other disciplines. They people can do an experiment. They can actually do a systematic experiment to test this. So people did experiments where they knocked out every single gene in an organism, and then they looked at the um, connectivity pattern of the genes they knocked out. And, they, and for each gene that's knocked out, sometimes the organism dies and sometimes it, li it lives. If the organism dies, the gene's said to be essential. And if it you know, lives, it's said to be not essential. And you know, what people found, which is kind of um, sort of fits with your intuition, is that, um, the, that hubs or things that are more connected tended to be more essential than not, and this is this was a early work that people did um, years ago, and and you know it, it, there's been a lot of follow-on ideas, but this is one of the things a lot of people in network biology have looked at this kind of idea that the the connectivity is related somehow to important um, properties of of the molecule. So you can kind of say, well, these are we don't know what this gene does, but it's a hub gene, and that that really tells you about kind of where it sits in in the whole a whole molecule so and how important if, it is. So if you knock out a gene and it, it causes the animal to, or the organism, the yeast, for example, to die, then you know uh, that, that uh, you're not that, but you can expect that protein to be a hub protein or for, for the most part, likely, likeliness that it is, is a, it'll be a hub protein or a VIP for a very important protein. That, that, no, that's correct. I mean, it, it, it's not a, a, a perfect, um, you know, uh, correlation, but 
it, there, there's definitely a strong enrichment for um, hub proteins being essential genes. And, you know, like I said, it makes sense, and it, it's actually very satisfying to see that. So that's one sort of simple uh, network idea. Now, another idea that you can see if you jump to slide 21 uh, is there's another concept of centrality or another concept of connectivity in networks, which is a little harder to grasp, but is actually more important, it turns out, in um, regulation. It's this concept of what they call betweenness centrality or bottlenecks. And it, it's a little more abstract. It's imagine you have a, um, a network and you kind of connect every, um, you look at the shortest path between every pair of nodes. Or you have a social network and you ask what's the shortest path between um, every pair of people. And then you ask which person does all those shortest paths um, go through the most. And that um, person would be um, a bottleneck, uh, a, a, a very, have a very high betweenness centrality. And, and, you know, you can get a little, now that's a little abstract what I said, but if you go to the next slide, you can get some media intuition for this. So people kind of know what a bottleneck is. Think of the road network, and you, the next slide just shows a picture of the George Washington Bridge. That's a bottleneck on the road network, and it's because a lot of the shortest paths for, um, through any two different points all converge on that one link. So if you want to get anywhere in the Northeast, you know, there's a very high chance that you're, and you're going to want to follow the shortest path, you're going to end up driving over the George Washington Bridge. And because of that, a lot of traffic, and it becomes a bottleneck. And people have immediate intuition for, you know, if you're in traffic, what is a bottleneck? Now, again, when we're going to talk about molecular networks, we're going to use the same terms. And if you think, you know, George Washington Bridge, when you, when you hear a bottleneck, you, you, you get, a, get a lot of intuition. And the next slide, slide 23, I hope I'm not going through No, no, this many. is good. So we've, we've got, just a quick review, we've got Hubness, where you've got a lot of people grabbing uh, your arms from like, or so you're 12, like you're an octopus with arms stretched out, you're the hub, uh, and all the, or the lines connect to you, right? It could be a subway station with five lines that merge somewhere like in Boston, for example. Then you've got betweenness, which is, uh, you know, a short route between two major systems, uh, you might be the one that carries people over, and that, a good example of between this is uh, George uh, Washington uh, Bridge, where you see a 12-lane or God, it's more like 20-lane <laughs> highway all merges because that's the shortest distance, but that leads to bottlenecks. That's exactly right. And if you go to the the next the next slide, it just actually shows just what you said. Where the neat thing is, you can if you look at the the little colors there you can see a, 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 a node or a gene or like in a social network a person could be a hub and for instance the um, uh, you know orange guy and the green guy are both hubs but some of those hubs could be bottlenecks they don't have to be and you could also have a bottleneck that's not a hub and vice versa and it just kinda gives you a little bit of a sense of that what those types of things are um, and then the next uh, Slides. By the way, let me quickly interrupt and say that if you're trying to strategize uh, a game like, uh, what's it called, The Amazing Race, you know, there's the bunching and the hubs, and uh, basically if you have a bottleneck and uh, where, the, and uh, it's a combination of bottleneck and hubs, 
uh, you could probably strategize a way to get through the race and get around people quicker. So I, I, I urge people, anybody's interested in an amazing race, <laughs> they take a look no, at these that, slides. No, that's, that, that's an, excellent, an excellent point because I think that, that, like I said, the neat thing about these, um, the, the bottleneck and hub concept, they're actually very abstract concepts in, you know, graph analysis. And, you know, if they're presented in a very dry way, people don't get a clue what they are. But if, but you, of course, confront them in, in everyday life and, and you get immediate intuition. You know, I want to do a quick journey someplace. How do I do it? And, and you get immediate intuition. Now, it turns out on the next slide, slide 24, this just shows that, you know, people have done some correlative work. And it turns out that in um, regulatory networks, um, the bottlenecks are actually more um, important and they're more associated with the essential and important regulators than the hubs. This is just a graph that shows that particular uh, type, of, type of correlation. And so the, it, you know, at, and it, this will come up in a, in a second. You can kind of get some intuition why bottlenecks would be very important in um, you know, molecular networks because you can kind of see them as like there's information flowing you know, constantly in the cell. And, you know, a bottleneck is, is a sort of choke point. You know, there's just too much information wants to flow down through that spot. And that's why it's going to be associated with things that are very essential and so forth. And, and yeah, I'm going to come back to that in, in a little bit. This so could then, apply to, in, entirely to VLSI, right? Very large circuit integration. Oh, oh definitely. Trying to no, design no, no. a chip for, that's faster, right? For computer networks, there's a very, very clear, I mean, uh, you know, type of analogy. And people often, uh, you know, they... They'll talk all the times about you know bottlenecks and in, in, in the internet you know that that maybe are dealing with our Skype transmission right now. But I mean that's a, a thing people think a lot about, um, and you know for sort of ob obvious reasons. Um, now the so just just a little bit more background, just real quick. I'm going to just jump you quickly through all the way to slide 27. Um, this slide um, shows a if you can see that, it shows a picture of the, the, um, the human protein interaction network. And what it shows painted on it, it shows painted on it a, a little bit of an abstract concept, but it's, it's the concept of which genes are changing a lot or which are varying. So we have, you know, roughly 20,000 odd genes in the human genome, and some of the genes are varying more in the human population than others. And, you know, you might say, well, is there any pattern to that variation? And it's actually kind of neat. So if you paint the genes that vary a lot onto the network, you can see immediately, you'll see the picture, you look at it, you see, aha, the genes that vary a lot, they tend to be on the periphery of the network. They're not in the center. Now, this is a, a picture, and actually in the next slide, which I don't even have to bother looking at, it, it shows more of the quantitation of it. But the, the important intuition is, Think about it for a second. Why, why might um, you have the more varying genes on the periphery of the network? Well, you can kind of sort of see it's related to that kind of essentiality idea. Um, you know, think about like a, if you have a very complicated computer network, you know, and you have like your central server that has all the files on, and then you have like some, you know, uh, client computers that are on the outside. You probably are going to play less with your central server because it's more fragile. You know, if you change it, there's so many other things that are dependent on it. Whereas the things um, on the periphery of the network, you know, you change and you mess them up or something like that, there's less things that are dependent on them. And so it's sort of Don't obvious die, that, right. say what? 
you don't die. <laughs> you well, no, that, no, that, that's, your, that's the color that's of exactly your fingernail, the and it, nobody cares. But if it's the uh, the mechanism for providing energy to uh, uh, um, a heart cell, then you're going to die, right? So that, no, that's exactly the idea. I mean, it's sort of like you look at a huge pipe network, and you said to yourself, geez, I'm going to throw a wrench at that pipe network, and where is it going to cause the most damage? Obviously, the place where the pipes are all connected very tightly, if you mess up there, it's going to you know, cause a big, big bit of damage, whereas stuff at the periphery won't mess up as much. And it's you know, obvious intuition. And the really neat thing is that it's, you see it in, in the reality of what happens in human proteins. The human proteins that are tightly connected, they're what the formal language is people would say they're under greater constraint. And the, the, the proteins that aren't as connected they're, they can change more. They're, they're, they're under either less selection or they're, they're actually under what's called positive selection. So they're actually encouraged to change. And so that, that, that's some, you know, it's sort of obvious intuitions, but it's, it's nice to see. Um, mm -hmm. So now what I'll do is I'll, I'm just going to skip all the way ahead to slide 30. And so, so I, what, I, what I've done a little bit is I've given you a little background on why you want to look at networks then some concepts in networks, you know, like these information flow bottlenecks, and then a little bit about how variation. And so now I'm going to give you a little bit of um, intuition about what molecular networks look like and try to make some uh, comparisons. Actually, go to the next, next slide. That's uh, slide 30. So this is a, you know, a social hierarchy. You know, you know, this, I made this slide a long time ago, and at the time, um, I guess George Bush was the, the, the president. And, you know, he was at the, the top of the governmental org chart and you I'm sure you recognize all these things and again people have immediate intuition for what that is so one of the things we uh, developed a while ago and shown on the next slide is we took a molecular regulatory network and we tried to to unravel it into a hierarchy and so the next slide just shows a little computer algorithm that's trying to take a network and kind of figure out well, what things are just regulated that sit on the bottom and how to work up what things regulate those and so forth. And there's a technical term for how this thing is searching. It's doing what's called a breath for a search. But the important idea is that you end up with a little hierarchy that has different levels. And then if you go to the next slide, that's slide 33, you actually can see the analogous molecular hierarchy to the social one that we start off. And so if you, you, you see there, you'll see this picture on the left of the um, regulatory network in um, yeast, that's uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and then the, on the right is a network in um, this uh, bacteria, E. coli. And these are very simple organisms. And, you know, again, you just, you can see right away, there's, there's some things at the top, they, they're sort of regulating and stuff like that, and then some things on the bottom. And so, you know, it, you get a little bit of intuition, you know, how, how is who's in charge of yeast, you know, how's the government of yeast work? And, and you get a little bit of intuition from looking at a type of picture like this. Yeah, now, there's, there's a committee of eight. <laughs> I yes. see a committee of well, eight. Well, no, but the, interesting has thing, two. the interesting thing, and I'll, I'll just show you in a second, you might think, now the, the quick intuition is that the things at the top are actually the things that are in charge, but actually what I'll show you in a second, it's not actually the case. It's actually the opposite way around, and, and it's actually kind of interesting. So if oh, it's you just, democracy. It's a democracy for the people at the lowest end that are working their way well, out. Well, that, no, that, that's, exactly, that's actually exactly the, the right intuition. A lot of times, 
um, you know, I'll, I'll show you this in, in a second. The, the, I mean, people on the top of these hierarchies are very important and they're very influential, but actually when you look at the runnings of like a country or a social organization, you know, the person on the top can change and the country doesn't stop. You know, just things keep on going. And, and, and you see this, no, it's the same, same type of we situation hope. in a, in a, in a <laughs> cell. So, so if you go now, just skip the next one, slide 34. This is a more technical uh, thing on slide 34. But on slide 35, actually, it's exactly what we were talking about. So what you can do, if you go to slide 35, exactly what you were, you, were, you were getting at, is we can take all the genes that are um, essential, and we can... Uh, well, and actually, the, the essentiality comes in different flavors of like strength of essentiality, and we can map them onto that hierarchy, and that's shown by the little red dot coloring so on this hierarchy. So you have this layer cake, and now I'm coloring each of the genes like a degree of red by how essential they are. And then you can say, well, where, um, where are the essential genes? And you, you might say, geez, the guys at the top I think they're going to be essential, but it's actually not the case at all. It's it's the the um, the other way around. It's it's actually the guys in the middle and and to some degree the bottom that tend to be the most essential. And that's kind of weird. That's that's very at least immediately it's a little different than what you um you might think. But what's also really neat and and I'll I'll you know um come to a rationalization of this in a second that. You, you, people can do other experiments what they can do is they knock out each of the genes and they see that the organism still lives but then they ask how many of the other genes are affected you know and affected can take many different forms it can be how many other genes are affected in their level of gene expression or it can be how many other genes or, or, or how, how much is the cell affected and how it grows and then what you see is the opposite. You see that the things at the top, as you kind of expect, are kind of most important. If you knock them out, more things are affected. And so um, we, we call this kind of the paradox of uh, influence versus essentiality. So it appears that in a biological system, the things at the top are um, influential. You know, if you affect them, the whole cell is affected but they're not essential, okay? It's, and, and actually, I think this is kind of like, you know, like sort of the, the president and the, um, the systems administrator, you know. You know, if, if, you, if the systems administrator in my lab disappears, my whole lab shuts down, like tomorrow. It just ends. <laughs> but, you know, if the president, when we had a transition from, oh, I don't know, President um, Clinton I mean, to President Bush and then President um, uh, Obama, it, you know, I mean, the you know, certainly my my um, little world just ke it keeps going on. Now I'm of course influenced by that, and there's a tremendous influence these people have. But it's a kind of um, more muted influence over everyone. And I I think it's a very nice sort of social analogy for what you actually see in a in a real um, biological network. And now actually the neat That's thing. A, it is, definitely is a paradox though, essential versus influential. I would have always thought that the essential were the influential. Well, no, and you can even rec reconcile the paradox a little bit. So if you go to the, the, the next uh, slide, that's the um, You slide. stop the trash and the system breaks down. But, you know, you change the president. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Well, I think I think You're it right. does right. reflect people's intuitions. Like I said, I mean, you you know, the very important leaders of the world, when they change, um, I mean, it, it affects people for sure. But it, it it's not like a little um, community disappears. At least most of the time, that's not going to be the case. Whereas a lot of times, there really are essential people that do specific jobs. You know, the doctor in a hospital or a person even say controlling a a big power plant or something, whereas if they were suddenly to um, to die or disappear, you know, it's just it, quite dramatic in terms of its effect. Um, but in, in any case, that this is this paradox. But the neat thing is you can actually re uh, reconcile this a bit in terms of the um, connectivity that you um, see in the network. So the slide 36, it, it shows that same picture of the hierarchy. But now what's plotted on the right-hand side is it's just sort of plotted what's technically called the out degree of each transcription factor, but what it means in simple mind language is how many other things does that that molecule regulate? Okay, so you know it's like if you're in an organization, people use the term how many direct reports do you have? And so what's plotted on that graph is how many direct reports each um, on average each molecule in that layer has. And what's really interesting is that the, mo the, um, the molecules with the most direct reports are the ones in the middle. So the ones at the top, even though they sit at the top, they don't have that many direct reports. You know, the guy at the top, you know, he talks to a few people beneath him, but, you know, he doesn't like he has like 100 people reporting to him. And this is actually similar to what you have in a big organization in a company. You might have the CEO doesn't actually govern directly all the people. He has as direct reports maybe five people, okay? But it turns out in the middle of the, of the hierarchy, those, that's where you tend to get um, regulators who have a tremendous number of direct reports. And the way to think about this is the, the factory foreman, you know, who has like literally 100 people who directly report to him. And what's kind of neat is we wanted to, so we wanted to make this analogy a little bit more precise. Um, so we wanted to actually find a real org chart and, and, and look at the number of direct reports. And so we, first we had the idea we'd grab like the U.S. government org chart or the IBM org chart. And it turns out they're much more complicated than the yeast org chart. There are many, many more levels, much, much more complicated. You could never kind of put them side by side. <laughs> realize, no, it's, it's interesting. You don't realize how complicated they are. So what we actually found to make it That's hilarious to, though that, you know, evolution and time a couple billion years can lead to a highly complex machine. And and I'm talking complexity, not like a comp, like a like an analog watch with all moving parts. These are parts that make themselves and then disappear and make themselves and disappear at different time cycles and different stages of life and different types of cells. I mean they uh, think about the complexity of the human brain starting from a single cell to the most complex machine in the world. Then you take its subparts, right? It, the, the actual, I'm not just talking about the cells, but then we, going on to the genes that uh, re regulate and make the products for the human brain. Uh, that, I, I, well, I guess maybe the human brain is more complicated than the U.S. government, but clearly yeast is a complex uh, beast. And you're saying that the U.S. government is more complex with, with respect no, to much, hierarchy much and... <laughs> but but what's what's neat is you might say what's what's analogous to yeast, and um, so in, if you look at uh, slide thirty seven, we we found this um, 
org chart that's kind of analogous to yeast. And it turns out this is the state of Macau, this, this small city-state. <laughs> the same level of complexity. And you can see it's got four wow. levels there. But what's really neat is you get the same kind of overall thing where the guy at the top, you know, you can see it's really clear here. He's got five direct reports. But the guys under him, they have more direct reports, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it matches your intuition about how you see social organizations. Now, the final thing to think about is, now, think about the, so we've, we've introduced the idea that the things in the middle tend to be essential. We've introduced the idea that the things in the middle have more direct reports. And then there was this other thing that we talked about earlier that I'm going to bring in now, this idea of bottlenecks. So if you go to the next slide, what you can do is you can calculate in that hierarchy where the information flow bottlenecks are. You know, for each node, you can say, how much like the George Washington Bridge is this node, right? And then you can calculate the average, what's called the average betweenness or the average degree of bottlenecknes in that hierarchy. And now, lo and behold, it turns out that it maximizes in the middle le level. And the reason it maximizes is because those middle level guys have the most direct reports. You can, it's sort of obvious that all the information has to flow through that factory foreman. And therefore, they become an information flow bottleneck. And therefore, it's actually quite reasonable that they're essential, you know, if you knock them out. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and, th and see, this is the type of way I think the network connectivity actually kind of explains a little bit the, pheno the phenotypically what you observe in terms of the molecules. That's an incredible uh, way to visualize life and the importance of each gene. And, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, we were to create, you know, we can set up the framework and create a social network based on hierarchy. <laughs> you imagine if Google Plus or, or Facebook could have hierarchy? Well, no, actually, what, actually it's com coming to actually, if you just skip all the way now to slide 40, it's the ne next. You can monetize that, that's it. That's actually a point that, that you're raising. So if you skip to slide 40, now, okay, come, let's come back to a social situation. There, there are many types of hierarchies. And you, you, know, you might ask, well, you know, maybe Facebook is maybe not the best example, but the, the, there's a lot of social situations you're often in that are hierarchical, okay? And let's think about the different types of hierarchies that you might be, uh, might be in. The one on the far left is kind of the, the extreme hierarchy. It's the autocratic hierarchy, you know, the military, you know, everyone's direct report up the, up the command chain and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And so the guy, you know, the guy at the bottom reports to the guy above and above and so forth. And you can kind of see immediately how this type of hierarchy leads to information flow bottlenecks because the guys in the middle you can see how all the information is going to bottleneck, right, in those things. And, this, and military planners think about this, right, because they think about well, what happens to that little um, platoon, um, you know, on the ground if the head of the platoon gets knocked out. If, if the head of the platoon is knocked out and all the information has to flow through, and what's going to happen to all the troops? You know, it's, it's actually quite a big deal. And so, the, you know, the, the kind of traditional autocratic hierarchy, I mean, it has a lot of issues. Now, if you look at the middle hierarchy, you have here what we call, what we and other people have called is a dem more democratic hierarchy, where you have a sense of some things are at the bottom, they're more regulated, and some things are at the top, they tend to regulate, and then there are things in the middle. 
but it's not absolute. And you know, one thing can actually be regulated by a number of things. And one way I think about this is kind of like a law firm, you know, where you might have an associate um, quote at the bottom or something like that. But you know, he's reporting to a number of partners or something like that. There's a there's not as clear sense of chain of command. And now what's neat is if you think about the autocratic um, hierarchy and you think about that um, that middle level like that you know the platoon leader and you say to yourself yeah that's a problem you know what if that person was knocked out then you imagine if you go all the way over to the right adding in like an extra link like a kind of crossbar to the network now you you make one of the privates at the bottom report to more than one platoon leader right and you can kind of immediately in see intuitively how that's going to cut the information flow bottlenecks in that central le level of the of the network, okay? Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and you can kind of see how it's going to make it more robust, right? I mean, you know, because suddenly you don't have this issue. And so one of the things we did, and if you go uh, qu quickly aside, the next slide, we tried to see: Do you see this kind of um, more democratic type of hierarchy um, in? Um, biological system or a more autocratic hierarchy and the, the rationale for the more democratic one would be it's more robust and very quickly actually I, I'll just tell you I don't I don't even think we have to have to look at all these slides or you can look at look at that slide 44 but I'll just say it in words what we basically found was that you can define a measure of kind of dem the more democratic or more autocratic like hierarchy in a particular in, in a hierarchy. And then you actually find that most biological networks tend to be more democratic than autocratic. And, a, and as you get more complicated organisms, like you go from E. coli to yeast to worm to human, you actually get an even more democratic structure. And the, the rationale here is not that these organisms are democratic, it's that th this structure is more robust, you know, to kind of knockouts and things like that. And also, one of the things you also see is that you, there's a tremendous premium on information, um, easing these information flow bottlenecks in the middle layers and having collaboration between nodes in the middle layers. And what's neat is after we did this, if you zip all the way to slide 45, we, um, you know, we, we were mostly looking at biological systems, but then, you know, for fun, we, you know, opened up some, um, you know, social science journals and stuff like that. And lo and behold, you can find lots of articles where people talk about, well, if you want an effective organization, you have to have your middle managers collaborating and talking to each other and not have it be, you know, an autocratic thing. And again, I, you know, I don't know if this is absolutely true in, um, uh, you know, corporate or um, social settings, but it, there is an intuition, you know, that you, you, don't that that you need to have that middle layer kind of working together and collaborating to get an effective organization and I think it's neat that you can see it you know rigorously in a biological system and then you get that nice intuition um, in a social setting I'd recommend that people go uh, make sure that they download and go to slide 45 <laughs> it's pretty a bunch of birds sitting on different levels of hierarchy and then there's a happy bird on top, and then the birds that are underneath are just a little bit white, and then the ones at the bottom are covered with white. It's pretty, uh, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So, you know, you've, you've taken us through um, a, a really important 
um, sort of a series of concepts that help us better understand the, the complexity of, uh, of life. And, and I really appreciate it because, you know, I, we're, we're at the verge of going from, you know, the, the single gene, single function element of science, of, of life sciences, and we need to really get a, an idea of how to go move to the systems biology and um, of course, when I was in uh, university, um, even at the PhD level, systems biology was just just starting. I think we, the the government of Canada uh, invested in the first uh, gene chip laboratory to look at how genes were being expressed, um, you know, sort of on a genome scale. And um, I think that well, the human genome hadn't even been completed yet. And now there's mountains and mountains and mountains of data coming in from proteomics projects where they're looking at what proteins are being made and what cell at what time, what disease state, genes are being expressed, uh, or gene chips are, are, are collecting data, what genes are turned on, turned off, which cell lines, which uh, ages of the cells, what disease states, what conditions of environmental conditions. I mean, there's so much data, and unless you, uh, you know, I highly recommend that Everybody in the field of life sciences that, uh, you know, listen to this twice. If you are like me and, um, you know, a, a reductionist, because to really take advantage of the next round of technology, uh, life technology, biotechnology, we're going to really, you know, if you want to get to that stage where it's like in the movie Blade Runner, where you can manipulate a whole organism, create a synthetic a snake or, you know, be it whatever, uh, or tackle a, a disease that's a complex disease. Um, you know, it really helps to, to be able to grab that, um, that image. And, um, for example, when I, when I, it clicked to me when I could understand the structure of DNA and how, um, you know, I could visualize it, then it, it became clear genetic engineering was something that I could do, and then I could um, expand and do a lot of molecular biology. But to get to systems biology, this is the um, pathway that we have to take and, and get an understanding of how these networks interplay and the importance of the components of those networks. And But this could apply to so, I mean, what you found in life, having had, you know, billions of years of evolution, you could translate this I mean, FedEx does a pretty decent job, but I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think the server farms at uh, the Apple uh, in North Carolina <laughs> are really optimized. And if you could help them, I, I bet you could. Really, <laughs> you've got the algorithms that help you evaluate and calculate um, bottlenecks. I mean, just that alone is is pretty fantastic. One thing I don't, I don't know if we'll have time, but I'm super keen to show one one or two more. More slides, and that—that that is the the next comparison. Actually, is exactly what you're you're alluding to: is to com make the comparison not um, only with social situations, but also with uh, computational systems. Because um, I, I don't know, do we have do we have time for? Yeah, this, this is this sure. this is kind of cool. So I just I, I I'm I'm quite proud of this. I think it's a fun thing. So you know, people often they they talk about the genome as the operating system for life. You know, it's the the ultimate operating system, and you know, what we've been talking about is how do you understand how the genome works in terms of these networks. And so the next, the, the next step in kind of this logic would be, well, well how, can I use the same mindset to understand how a computer operating system works, right? Because now I actually have the computer operating system and 
can I, do I see bottlenecks there? Do I see hierarchy in how a computer operating system works? And so what we did is exactly what, exactly what you're alluding to. We took the same machinery and we went into the Linux um, kernel. Now, the <laughs> Linux kernel is very cool because let me tell you a few reasons why it's very cool. First of all, it's completely open source, right? So we can do whatever we want with it. And in particular, there's pieces of software that we can run in it where we can watch, we can, we can watch the regulatory network in action. We can watch which routine in Linux calls what other routine or regulates it, right? And then how that regulates that. And so, so there's a nice analogy between the gene regulation of transcription factors regulating one another and subroutines regulating one another in Linux, okay? So, so we can make that analogy and then we can see does Linux operate the same way that, say, E. coli or yeast does? But what's even cooler is now in E. coli or yeast, we, we can watch them evolve, right? We, we look at, you know, remember we looked at how the, in, in human, the, um, the, the parts that vary a lot were on the outside of the network, and we can do that in yeast and E. coli too. In Linux, we can do the same thing because we've watched Linux evolve over the last 20 years. We, and we have every single version of the kernel. So we can take all of the Linux kernels and we can ask for each subroutine how much does it change between each version of the kernel. You know? And so we, it's just the way we look at a gene evolve in terms of like which genes have more mutations and base changes, we can see which routines in Linux have more changes too. And so it's a very nice, I, I think, a very nice analogy uh, that you can make between these two things. So Linux is living, potentially. Say what? Linux is alive. <laughs> well, no, it, 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 it I mean, some degree, yeah. you can see it like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually, you know, think that it, it, it does behave like that. But what's neat, what's really neat is now, if you go to slide 48, okay, so I showed you the regulatory hierarchy in, uh, you know, um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae and yeast and an E. coli, and it, it, it's a, pyra a pyramid with a few things at the top. And now, remember, E. coli was the same, the same way. There's a pyramid. There's a few things at the top, lots of things at the bottom. And remember, the governmental network was just like that, too. There's a few guys at the top and not that many, many more people at the bottom. Linux is completely different. The hierarchy in Linux is upside down. It's completely different from the type of hierarchy that we're accustomed to. And it actually, well, in a sense, um, E. coli is like Linux, but actually you can see how a man-made construction here is completely different. There, so what does this mean? There are many things at the top that regulate, and there's only a few workers at the bottom that take all the orders, right? Very upside down, okay? So now, what, is, what does that mean? So if you, you go to the next, um, the next slide, I, I'll just give you a little bit more intuition. The, what happens in um, biological system is you have the big hubs, the, the things that have a lot of connectivity, are regulators. There are things like... Um, uh, for instance, there's a gene in E. coli called CRP. This gene regulates a lot of things. It, ha it, it has a lot of connectivity in the network because it gives a lot of orders. And that's kind of the, the situation we're most accustomed to in um, a social situation. Uh, the, 
the people with the most connectivity tend to give orders out to a lot of other people. But what happens in, in um, the um, computer operating system network is completely opposite. The things with the highest connectivity are the things ordered around the most. And what are those things? Well, if you program a computer, you're probably all used to this. Routines like printf or printk or the, the routines that you're constantly calling and ordering to do something, these are the routines that, the, or these are the parts of the operating system that have the most connectivity. It's completely opposite, right? So what happens in um, computer networks is we, 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 or computer operating systems is we develop these reusable components that we really, really, really reuse many, many times. And because of that, they get tremendously high connectivity. And, and we get this inverted pyramidal structure. So it's a very different structure, actually. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see how different it is. And now it gets better. So if you go to the next slide, that's slide 50, one of, so one of the things that happens, so how, how, what, what, what's kind of happening here? In Linux, we're reusing the same routine over and over again, like printk. We're constantly calling it, right? So if you, if you, you can kind of make these calculations, which I won't go into detail, we can kind of figure out the, the overlap of all the sub-hierarchies and the amount of node reuse, so the, the amount of routine reuse. But the bottom line is that in Linux, the routines are used much more than E. coli. So E. coli, you might think of a little like sub-pathway or gene is regulated by, by um, or is used a lot, but actually it's not participating in many different things. It's, it's actually the bottom is very fat, okay? There's not a lot of reuse. Now, the, now the next um, slide, um, actually let's, let's just zip all the way to slide 52. That slide has the, um, the punchline. So what we can do is um, we can look at each of the, um, the um, gene, the, I'm sorry, we can look at each of the genes in the, um, in, uh, the, the um, yeast hierarchy and we can say how quickly are they evolving, which ones are very conserved. And what we've kind of found is that the genes that tend to um, uh, evolve more slowly, they're under more constraint, are the ones that have more connections. That was the thing I showed you earlier in the, you know, sort of um, human regular, mm -hmm. the, the human interaction network. Yep. In, in, in Linux, it's the opposite. It's bizarre. The things that change the most are the things that actually have the highest connectivity. It's bizarre. <laughs> and I guess uh, they keep, people keep futzing with them. <laughs> oh, no, that's exactly the point. So let, let's go, go to slide 53, next slide. That, that's the, the point. So what happens in Linux is there's a few routines that are used over and over and over again. And in every version of the kernel, they keep, people keep futzing with them. And they, <laughs> they keep messing with them. Whereas in um, E. coli, the things that tend to be used more, people don't touch. And now you might say, why is that? Why is the difference? And there, there's a very, it's actually very interesting. The diff, there's a reason there's, there's, a, there's a difference. In E. coli and in yeast, the changes that are made come about from evolution. They come about from random changes that are just random things, right? So, you know, you make a random change, you have no guarantee 
that that change will be good or bad. You know, that's the way natural selection works, random change, right? Whereas in Linux, it's a completely different situation. This is intelligent design, right? That every well, sometimes, change that's, yeah. Every change that's made is not random. It, it, that change is made by a designer. It's made by an intelligent designer who knows that that change, or at least intends, that that change is not going to be deleterious. It's actually going to be beneficial, right? So, it's, so actually, I mean, I, I know I'm throwing around pretty big words here, but it, it is the case that in Linux, you really do have an intelligent design scenario, whereas in E. coli, you have random evolution, you know, natural selection, random evolution. And you really see the difference, I think, in the structures because of these two things. And now the final thing that happens is you might ask yourself, well, one of the neat things about um, E. coli is that it's robust to all those, those random changes. And that's, that's the whole point of this, the, the, a very small amount of reuse of components. So you can make random changes to the E. coli hierarchy, the organism still lives. It's very robust. Whereas in Linux, if you tried to make random changes, it, w it would fall apart in a second. And even if you make intelligent changes from an intelligent designer and you screw up, you'll mess up the thing. And that's, I think, why complex software systems are actually not that robust. You see? That's, that's amazing. I'd love to see how other operating systems fit within the scope of uh, and, and correlate potentially to robustness. Because that well, would actually, settle it for sure. Microsoft. <laughs> we, we did. We actually talked to him. And they, they said that they would send us, there, there's a version of Windows that you can get that's open. And we could do the same thing with Windows. But we haven't gotten that yet. But we, it, I, I'd be very interested to see what, what Windows is like. Well, Windows has a lot of legacy stuff. Um, and it, its function is based, I mean, I guess what's, uh, powerful in Windows is its legacy, its ability to run version 1984 of, of an app. I mean, you could take, I saw a video on YouTube where a person took um, using, they used a virtualization tool, I think it was uh, VMware, and they installed Windows version 1, and then they put on some apps. They installed version 2, version 3, you know, 3.1, then they went to uh, 95, 98, um, 2000 and, and they kept they kept checking back to see if, if the apps would still run if it was robust and there were some versions of I think Windows 98 that weren't so robust and then things got back to XP and things started to, to work again um, it'd be interesting to see if the uh, you know an approach to legacy code um, versus uh, you know starting from scratch and starting over is the way to go but uh, no, it, it, it's very interesting I mean it's very very interesting you know how we, you know, we're developing these very complex, you know, networks and operating systems now. And, you know, people talk all the time about, you know, are we building robust things are, and are we taking into account to some degree, I don't want to say the lessons of biology, but, you know, the, the ideas of, of robustness that you get from biology. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, well, it might make you wonder what approach is better, right, to uh, do a synthetic design of an organism from scratch or to use millions of years of small random changes to build a robust system. And clearly that uh, it's worked. I mean, look, we're, uh, we're alive today after four and a half billion years, right? And the chemistry is still moving. So uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty strong argument for um, uh, the, 
the survival of the fittest approach to designing the perfect organism, right? Versus, uh, but I don't want to get too metaphysical here. Uh, intelligent design, if, unless that intelligence is perfect, then uh, somebody that was knew that robustness came through random changes would the intelligent designer would say, I'll let it go random and to build the but perfect. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, that, that's an interesting interpretation, yes. Yes. So, wow, your 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 um, your analysis here is is absolutely fantastic um, into the inner workings of life and 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 how these interplay. I you know I I never thought we we get to that point and uh, that's it. One of these days, I'd like to ask you how you 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 collect or um, you know grab the data with respect to a gene and its relative importance I, I suppose you go through the databases and look for the number of uh, references and taglines for each one and uh, sort of you know create scripts that can go out and fish out that information uh, but, but we'll save that for another show because I'd really like to talk about uh, if, if we have another uh, 10 or 15 minutes about uh, um, biosecurity right and um, I'm going to suggest that this be the intro to a Security Now episode, uh, and we have to get um, Eileen and, and, and Steve Gibson um, to connect with this and maybe take it from our, our 10 or 15 minute introduction to this concept um, and expand on it because, uh, you know, th this really is a matter of, of security uh, and... Um, I think it would be really nice to introduce it here, and then if you could, you know, cross the uh, Skyposaurus from one screen to another and take it from there, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, so perhaps you could give us some of your thoughts of of, of where uh, security, you know, and molecular genetics uh, interplay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know, as I mentioned to you before, I'm quite passionate about this subject and. Um, and I'm very interested in it. Um, recently, there's been the advent of this thing called personal genomics, which is essentially um, the ability to sequence an individual's genome fairly cheaply. And it's, it's, this is an amazing technological revolution that's happened in the last decade, um, you know, mostly driven by the ability to sequence DNA ever and ever more cheaply. And so now we're, you know, in this world where um, very soon, um, everyone probably will have their genome sequenced as a matter of course in, um, in, in the context of medicine. And, you know, you might say to yourself, well, that, that sounds like a good thing. Maybe they, that, you know, people will be able to look at the genome and, um, you know, help with uh, diagnoses and so forth. And I definitely think that's going to be the case. And it's also going to be the case that with um, a very large amount of genomic data around, um, there will be tremendous opportunities to mine that information to find very subtle um, and very interesting correlations that, you know, potentially are going to be very um, informative in terms of people's health. Um, but one, you know, issue that's not as obvious is, well, you know, if I have my um, genome sequenced or if I have all this genetic information floating around the world, well, what does it mean if other people find out about it or how, do, how does one think about this information? And um, you know, people haven't really grappled with this issue before. And, you know, it turns out, I actually think if you think about it, you're, you're going to re realize that this is going to require a, a wholesale change in people's thoughts about, um, I, I think, about privacy and sequencing. Because, first of all, genetic information is 
very fundamental. It's probably the most fundamental information you have. It's more, I mean, why is that? Because you, you can't change it, basically. I mean, you can change your thoughts, you can change your clothes, you can do all sorts of things, but you can't change it. And more than the fact that you can't change it, you pass it down to your kids and to your grandkids and so on and so forth. And so, you know, it, your information actually is, is beyond you, right? It, 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 it is associated with your, um, your relatives. And, you know, right now, people look at genetic information and they kind of think of it as a, to some degree, a curiosity. You know, there's people who, uh, you know, sequence their uh, genomes or they do uh, what they call SNP chips, which are sort of like cheap sequencing of their uh, genomes. And they, you know, they put the information up and people look at it and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's essentially incomprehensible. I mean, it's three billion letters of, um, you know, AGCTs. It's even more incomprehensible than the parts list I started out uh, talking about. And people don't really know what it does and they have some ideas and so forth. And, you know, right now it's frankly a lot of fun um, to uh, look at it and to uh, compare it and so forth. But I think what is not appreciated as much is that, um, you know, knowledge is going to, or science is going to go on, and, you know, uh, certainly with more and more information piling up, you know, people are going to be able to do more and more sophisticated types of data mining. And this type of data mining will enable them to, um, to find all sorts of subtle correlations in uh, your genetic sequence that potentially will predict your, your health or just all sorts of your proclivities, you know, what you look like, uh, how you behave, and so forth. And, and they're probably not going to be able to do it now, but maybe 20 years from now, 30 years from now. But the point is, once the information gets out there in the world, you, you can't take it back, right? So if I sequence my genome and I put it up on the web or it, it, it becomes a, uh, something I share, um, it, right now it seems like a lot of fun and it's actually a, a good thing to do. But 30 years from now, potentially people could mine that type of information to find out all sorts of things about either me or um, my descendants. And so because of that, I think that people really have to think about how to, um, to protect this information. Now, it's actually a very subtle security thing because on one hand, we want to protect this information. On the other hand, of course, we want to have this information out there for the world so that we can mine it, right, collectively amongst all people to find very interesting or not interesting, important correlations that could lead to better medicine or useful correlations that could potentially um, lead to all sorts of um, uh, useful drugs and so forth. And so we want to have a situation where people can um, do um, research on genetics and, and also um, find, actually find that information interesting and, and use it without compromising um, their privacy. And, I, you know, I think because also the scale of this information, you know, the, a human genome is 3 billion, or actually 6 billion bases, um, it, you know, it's, it, it's actually hard to think about how to properly protect it, how to move it around and so forth. And I think this, this um, poses a lot of very interesting uh, privacy and security challenges. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite uh, passionate to... Um, uh, you know, not so much to get the negative word out that uh, this this is a problem, but just to, to get people to think about this and to, to try to come up with a framework um, to, to, to deal with this information properly before um, bad things happen and um, uh, a lot of uh, genomics gets essentially a bad name. 
uh, and, and genomics right. and data mining. And I think even now, actually, I mean, I'm essentially a, a data miner. And, you know, I, I see more and more that, that data mining, it, it gets a very bad name. You know, people associate with pop-up ads or, you know, right. junk mail in there. You know, no, they've they got to flip it, right? Do you want to base your medical decisions on your parents' history or do you want to base it on your current molecular map? On your well, parts list and on your bioinformatic data, I, I think that's, that's actually very interesting. I mean, there's certain. I mean, that's the famous, you know, nature versus nurture, um, you know, debate. I mean, to what degree are you determined by your genes? Um, you know, no one knows the exact answers to this, but it's definitely the case that, um, you know, your DNA is going to be associated with a lot of a lot of things, and in particular, it's going to be associated with a lot of your physical characteristics. You know, your your sports ability, your musical ability, you know, your, your susceptibility to certain well, diseases. But your DNA is also subject to change. If you, if you uh, take a um, uh, mutagen, like you smoke a cigarette, right, you're, you're mutagenizing yourself and you're exposing yourself to changes in perhaps the non-essential outward uh, non-hubs and non-bottlenecks, but uh, God forbid you change a, a hub or a bottleneck uh, gene, then you're... Uh, uh, well, no, no, that, that's certainly true. I mean, you can cer certainly, the, you know, the environment and mutagens and whatnot, um, you know, th that, that's certainly something that, um, you know, affects people's health. But, but I do think that their underlying uh, genetic code is very, very fundamental. And it's interesting to, to walk around with this type of fundamental information and to think about, well, how, how should it be used and how, how, you know, what's the right way of protecting it? Protecting it, and we we were talking a, a, a bit earlier, and I was sort of saying to people that it's it's kind of almost like the the advent of um, photography. You know, before photography, there was no concept of preserving someone's image. And, you know, the concept of like paparazzi or the privacy of your images was never something people would think about because you just couldn't preserve that at all. Maybe a painter could paint something, but it wasn't really a meaningful thing. Now, you know, geez, people walk around every day with essentially a number of cameras. I, I actually carry, since I carry an iPhone and, you know, things like that, I actually carry at least a camera all the time with me. And, and people constantly just take images of things. And, and, and they don't think anymore of the, um, those things being private or, or that type of data. And I think we're soon going to be in the same world with um, sequencing, where we're going to be able to sequence everything. Um, and, you know, we have to think about this. And here, here's some interesting little uh, tidbits just to think about. Um, you know, imagine you go to a, a store. You know, you we're accustomed now to going to, a, um, a, say, a supermarket, and there's a camera in the supermarket. Watches, you know, security camera. But mm -hmm. imagine the supermarket did something like they said, well, we're going to take the uh, DNA on all the shopping carts, and we're going to sequence it. And we're going to take all the sequenced DNA, and then we're going to do um, very detailed correlative studies to try to predict which types of people tend to congregate in which aisles with which foods. You know, there's probably a very clear relationship between Absolutely. chemoreceptors and what foods you go in. And maybe they're going to, I don't know, they're going to try to market certain things related to certain genotypes. I mean, it's kind of cool in a way, but it's also kind of scary, okay? And, it, you know. <laughs> it's nuts. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, well, no, that, well, that's sort of the issue. I mean, I think, I think it's it, it, it good to have a discussion about this before it actually happens. Or another type of instance where we imagine you, um, you go to a friend's house and, um, 
you, uh, I don't know, you decide for fun, you want to take a swab and just swab along a table in that house, and you take it home, and you sequence it, and you get a picture of all the individuals that walked into that house, right? Because they leave a trace, they leave a sequence, right? So you take, you have, you essentially have like a, a DNA fingerprint of everyone who walked into that room, right? And again, you know, it sounds kind of cool, but do you want, what do you think of that? I mean, good or bad? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think it's good. I think we need those genomes. We need them quick. I want to base my health condition, my, 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 um, my medical strategies um, on, my, on my predicted and planned future rather than the randomness of not knowing what's going on. I think it will revolutionize um, health care. It will bring health care costs down. Um, and it's important to have. And if it helps market to me the things that I need or want, great. But uh, as long as there's a law that says I can't discriminate, be discriminated against because these are my genes. Um, and then it also helped us, you and I, form a company to make uh, some DNA spray <laughs> where we, we take some, you know, uh, uh, yes. hamster DNA and we'll make, yes. mix it in with a suntan lotion. And then yes. when we go and use that little trolley at the market, we've confused people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, but think about this. Think about this one thing, though. I mean, think about. I mean, you probably. I mean, they passed GINA, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, and you're probably not going to get discriminated on based on your DNA. But what if your DNA is sequenced? And let's just say, for argument's sake, you're a, you're an, you know out, outgoing person, and you you know you decide you want to put it up on the web, and maybe I don't know, thirty years from now, you know, a descendant of yours, maybe a you know granddaughter or whatnot is, you know, they, they do some study and they find that a particular allele or variant of a gene is a, might be associated with some, I don't know, schizophrenia, some, some, some mental disease. And then your, your daughter does a Google and she realize that, and your their daughter's friends realize that, oh, that, that person has that allele. And they tease them in high school. You know how people are in high school. I mean, discrimination yeah. is the way high school works. I mean, it's, it's you know, basically how people behave in, in high school. And, and, you know, it, it's not something that you can legislate again. It's something that you would want not to happen and want to have prevented from happening. I guess, and I, I guess you have to educate. And we will develop a new level of uh, a paradigm for uh, ethics and, and way of treating other people. We know that certain things are good and certain things are bad and not legislated. And we're sort of uh, become part of our moral fiber. And uh, we, I guess we'll have to... Uh, um, abide by that. Hey, you know, I'm going to recommend that uh, 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 Steve Gibson take this on um, because there's a lot of um, really, really important implications here in terms of respect to security and it will go well beyond just data. Um, well, well, just, just the final thing I'll say, the key thing is I, I, I agree with you, but I just want to add that I don't really think that, it, I mean, at the end of the day, you can tell people to behave ethically, but I don't think that's actually the solution. I mean, I actually think the solution is computer technology. I think that people have to develop a technological system for sharing this type of information and mining this type of information without compromising people's privacy. I, I don't think you can just simply say, well, educate people and they'll behave responsibly. I think it's, you have to um, develop a well, computer you know, security uh, setup so that you can deal with this information properly. I, I actually think it's, more, my personal view, it's more of a technological issue. 
Well, um, we we have to go. Uh, uh, coming up next is uh, TNT, so we have to uh, we have to uh, let it go. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back on. Well, you know, I'd really like to thank you for coming on because uh, you know you're clearly a thought leader on um, in the in the world of bioinformatic informa- uh, bioinformatics here, and, and it's a, a great privilege to interact with you here. On uh, on the on the show because uh, I'm, I've just learned an enormous amount and I I, I can see why uh, you know um, uh, I can see how valuable it would be to uh, to get a, a go through an entire lecture series with you at uh, at Yale and uh, I really appreciate you sharing that time with us here. I, I don't think my students would agree with you though. I think they fall. <laughs> I'm sure they would, and then some, because they get more time with you. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. Okay, thank you very much. I had a good time. And good luck on security now. Okay, Blow them away. Sure <laughs> In a good way. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Burke McQuinn for handling the audio and video boards today and the recordings. Um, the team uh, that make this possible, Leo Laporte, Lisa Kinzel, Frederick Louis, Aline Rivera, Tony Wang, Mike Taylor, John Slinina, Jeff Stewart, and Jason Howell, uh, and the rest of the team uh, at the cottage and soon to be at the Twit Studios. Um, if you have any uh, comments or suggestions, I can be reached at Mark, M-A-R-C, at twit.tv or at Twitter at at Mark Pelletier. Um, uh, I'd like to also thank Phil Peltier and Will Hall for the opening and closing themes. For Futures in Biotech, I'm Mark Peltier.